0: We begin this morning with some family news that you as a congregation should know, and that is that our oldest member, uh, Leon Maxwell, passed away last Sunday. He was 99 years old, and our spiritual father, he will be missed. You are all invited to his memorial service. It's this Friday at 2 o'clock at the Denver Seminary Chapel. We will miss him. As we receive God's word, let's pray it into our hearts with a responsive prayer. like a stone commanding every edge to sharpen, calling every novice to plentiful verve and every outcast to a priesthood of believers, hear the cry for freedom, for holy imagination, from generation to generation, those who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Ignite our senses since this life is yours. Bend. Break, shape, lift, free all things to your kingdom. And when I'm occupied in my own tied tapestry of guardedness, heart as hard as city pavements, you call forth, Rise up, throw caution to the winds, giving to the needy and reckless abandon. Help us to embody your kingdom, remembering that you have given all peoples, as beings made in your image, the capacity to participate in your kingdom. May we seek to live in one accord, moving along in unison like instruments of a great concert under the direction of a concert master. So the Holy Spirit blends together the lives of every son and daughter. We are blessed to be a blessing, dispensing good to others. God has reconciled us and given us the ministry of reconciliation. And we have been loved extravagantly so we could be extenders of extravagant love. Amen. In the Gospel of Mark, the first words Jesus speaks The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. The good news. We wanted to review a bit of last week with the Kingdom of God. We want to show you a film by BibleProject.com, it's called The Gospel of the Kingdom.
1: There's this beautiful poem, it's in the book of Isaiah.
2: The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us?
1: Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone.
2: Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed.
1: Everything seems lost.
2: But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls, and far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, Good news! And Isaiah says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message.
1: What's the message?
2: that despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne and bring peace.
1: And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament we find this same phrase, the
2: good news. It is the Greek word euangelion and it is also sometimes translated with the word gospel.
1: So when Christians say, do you believe the gospel? They mean, do you believe the news?
2: But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of
1: God's kingdom. So, Jesus saw himself as the messenger bringing the news that God reigns.
2: Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom.
1: Now Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him.
2: Yeah, so for example, there is this really interesting story where there is a high-ranking Roman officer. And he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he
1: was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people for giving people their sins.
2: And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decided to
1: have him king. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you are trying to become king.
2: That is right, but for Jesus this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the King of the Jews.
1: Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news!
2: And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his
1: life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom
2: and to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love.
0: Repent and believe the good news, but not everyone thinks it's good news. There's a line in the film I wanted to underline. The word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. All of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. Janae, in our small group material, has entitled this week's lesson, Conflict and Controversy, and it's spot on. This text is full of anger, and it's always interesting to see what makes a person mad. Hearts are revealed in the context of conflict. There is conflict from Jesus' religious leaders, pastors, they are uh, perceiving Jesus now as a threat and are absolutely annoyed at his audacious claims. And we'll see that in just a few moments. But I wanted to also underline in this text at the very end, Jesus is mad. Mark three verse five. Jesus looked around at them in anger, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, "Stretch out your hand. It's an anger miracle." He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. That word anger in the Greek is a compound word, mega orge, which means beyond rage. He is hacked and grieving at the same time, distressed at their stubborn hearts. You always get to know a person's heart when you see them angry. So we'd like to ask the question what made Jesus mad? Why was he so angry? Here's the big idea. When someone asks you this week, hey, what would you talk about at Waterstone this week? Here you go. This is what you can tell them. You are never more like Jesus than when you're mad at your pastors. (laughs) We want to walk through each string of this conflict and understand Jesus' heart. Who is Jesus? Round one. Ding. We have the conflict over the healing of a paralytic. This probably happened at Peter's house. Remember, uh, Jesus is in Capernaum in the north part of Israel, uh, his home base, probably staying boarding with uh, Peter and Andrew, who were brothers, and uh, they're in the house. The word of Jesus has gotten out, so there are crowds everywhere, paparazzi in the house, Outside of the house, there's these four friends who have a paralyzed friend. They bring him, but they can't get close to Jesus. Too many people. So what they do is walk up the outside stone staircase to get on the roof. Now understand, in Palestinian homes, roofs were made of uh, wood crossbeams and then covered with branches and reeds and then slathered with mud, caked on the whole thing, thick, which is why in the text, you probably noticed, it said they had to dig through the roof. They are uh, giving a mud shower to everyone in the roof. They dig this hole and drop this man down right in front of Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, seeing their faith, their faith? Faith is action. Faith is uh, taking action in response to a trust that you have in Jesus. So they act. They drop this man right in front of Jesus, and here's what's even more stunning. Jesus says to the man, "Son, your sins are forgiven." Now, that's stunning for two reasons. First, and Jesus' pastors got this one right away to say to someone, "Your sins are forgiving, well, you've inched in there on the domain of God." The pastor said it, "Only God can forgive sins." When David sinned against Bathsheba, he wrote this song in Psalm 51. David comes right out. He says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. Jesus is acting in this moment as if everyone's sin is against him. And the pastors thought it blasphemous. Imagine, I mean, let's say you and I, I'm hanging out with you, and you catch me in the act of stealing $20 from you. It could happen. We're having a discussion, and Jesus walks up, and he said, Larry, son, your sins are forgiven. What would you think? First of all, you'd wonder about your 20 bucks, but second, you'd say, who in the world do you think you are forgiving sins? It's the realm of God. C.S. Lewis captured this so eloquently in Mere Christianity. Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person directly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any other speaker who is not God... These words imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. So the pastors thought Jesus was blaspheming, claiming to do something that only God can do. But I think it's stunning was stunning for another reason. I mean, imagine if you're one of the four guys and you hauled this guy up, did all the work and got him there, and then the first thing Jesus says is, Oh, your sins are forgiven. What would you think? We didn't bring him here for that. We, we need him healed. Jesus is making this stunning claim that he is the one who can not only heal, it's like which is easier for me to say, but also forgive. And if he forgives sins, he can take everyone in the world to a place where there will be no more sin. And if there's no more sin, there's no more sickness. What he's saying is, I can remove from this cosmos when I bring a new heavens and a new earth. That's me, I'm bringing it. I can take us to that place where there is no sin. And if there is no sin, there is no more sickness. That's who I am. The kingdom of God is forgiveness. And Jesus is the Lord of the heart. The implication for us in this, as we see this miracle happen, even though we, any of us at any time might have a physical ailment, a disease, a financial stress, an emotional toil, whatever it is in our lives, Jesus is reminding us that the most important need of any life, no matter your situation, is to have a heart that's reconciled to God. Forgiven. What he's saying to the to the man that he's about to heal, if he would have started off and said, Okay, oh, I can heal you, but you'll be happy for a couple days, a couple weeks, probably a couple months, you'll be happy. But eventually it will wear off, and you are still you, and happiness, unhappiness will set back in, and there'll be other problems, stresses, and there's misery. And by the way, you'll die. I mean, we cannot get complete and total physical healing in this life. What we need to bank on is something beyond this life even, and the way that that happens is to have a forgiven heart. I mean, God's the one who made us. By right, he owns us. He expects of us resolute obedience and joyful submission, but we have pushed him away. Adam and Eve, we in them, And all of us since have pushed him away in rebellion. And so the only way that we'll ever be able to live with God again is if we receive what he offers us, forgiveness on his terms through his son. And when we have that, our heart has what it really needs, not a temporary cure, a salvation from the king. You know, I like the way that uh, Cynthia Heimolt writes about this, that what our heart really needs. She uh, used to uh, be the reporter for the Village Voice, and she used to see movie stars before they became famous, when they were waiting tables and taking tickets at the theater. She writes, I pity celebrities. <laughs> no, I do. They were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now, their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame They worked. They pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. I think when God wants to really play a rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of forgiveness. I can forgive sins. I'm the Lord of the heart. The kingdom of God is forgiveness. I can give your heart what it really, really needs. Bing, round two. Here we go, bing, bing, I should say. This is the calling of Levi. Levi, and it's painful even to say it, in the 21st century, was a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated, loathed. The way the Roman Empire Taxation Bureau worked was that they would go and conquer a country, but they would leave many in the country to work for the Roman government. They especially had natives of the country work as tax collectors because they knew the land and they knew the people. So what the Jews in, who lived in Palestine or Galilee would do would be to, if they want to be a tax collector, they would uh, go and for a, a region of the land submit a bid and tell Rome, I will collect this month, this much from this region. And Rome would say, okay, that's your assignment. And then whatever else the tax collector could collect above that bid was theirs. It was an occupation for graft and greed. As much as you could make above what you owed Rome, good. It was an opportunity for go-getters. And they were despised. In fact, in the Talmud, the Jewish literature, tax collectors were not allowed to set foot into the synagogue. And even more, the synagogue was not allowed to accept charitable donations from tax collectors so poor levi he had a son named levi jr who levi jr was not allowed to bring his father into career day at his school (laughs) despised and jesus walks up to him levi at the tables in capernaum and says follow me and he does he leaves everything follows jesus Sometime later, he throws a party, invites all his friends. It's called tax collectors and sinners. And uh, there's two interesting things about the text as this party is described. First, it's not the usual word for a meal, you know, a sedate silverware affair. This is a blowout party. Staying alive, kind of this they are into it. They are rocking. And the other part of the language is that even though it's in Levi's house, Jesus is the host of this party, which points to the end of history, the end of all time, where everything's going, when all sinners will sit down at the table with Jesus the king. That's Jesus hosting the party. That's where this is pointing to grace. The kingdom of God is grace tax collectors and sinners sitting down with the one who made them and enjoying the feast of the king grace and jesus is lord of the table now anyone who follows jesus churches who preach jesus need to be places of grace that's where it presses into our life eugene peterson describes it this way The error persists, despite very clear evidence to the contrary. Men and women insist on thinking of Christians as the good people whom God likes. But Jesus said that Christians are the bad people whom God calls to salvation. The church, like a hospital, is full of sick people in the process of being healed. Not well people displaying their prowess. I love this quote because the hospital is the metaphor. Jesus said... It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus says, as much as it makes sense for him to be around sinners, it makes as much sense for doctors to be around sick people. We are to be around tax collectors and sinners. It's our calling. Jesus' pastors thought that the way you stayed holy was to keep bad people away. Jesus says, no, the way you become holy is to engage tax collectors and sinners and tell them about me. So, as my civics high school teacher used to say, people, close your books, take out a sheet of paper, it's time for a quiz. Grace quiz at Waterstone. I want you, Waterstone, to answer these questions. Now, when I say you, Waterstone, I mean you. Each of you who is part of Waterstone, I'm asking you to evaluate your heart. Evaluating your heart is evaluating Waterstone, because you are Waterstone. Do the down and out tax collectors and sinners feel welcome in our church? are we more a community of respectability or a community of grace? Would sinners feel wanted and welcome among us? And this last one, I think, is the interesting one. (laughs) Would we like Jesus if he walked in? Sinners loved him. Legalists were revolted by him. How would you have responded? The kingdom of God is forgiveness. Jesus is Lord of the heart. He wants to give every heart what it really needs. The kingdom of God is grace. Jesus is Lord of the table, and he wants sinners and tax collectors near him. Ding, 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 round three. This is a question about fasting. Fasting was the primary spiritual discipline to show everyone else that you were serious about God. The Pharisees fasted every Monday and Thursday from dawn to dusk. They prayed for the peace of Jerusalem and the needs of the synagogue. They were serious about their relationship with God. They asked Jesus' disciples, why don't your, Jesus, why don't your followers fast? Jesus <laughs> turns the metaphor from serious to, well, um, a wedding. He said, why would you fast when the bridegroom's with you? Now, a wedding in the ancient world, it was quite an ordeal. Seven days long. The only questions you had to worry about were how much food and drink you could consume. And where would you dance? On the street or in the house? Really hard questions. Fasting. Why would you fast when Jesus is present? This is a time for joy. Waterstone, the kingdom of God is joy, and Jesus is Lord of the fast. He turns every fast into a feast by dropping in the E for Emmanuel. God is with us, He's the Lord of the feast. The implication for us is we should be a place of joy. What's joy? Joy is the mood that's always lifted, always elevated because we have a glimpse of the end. And what's the end? Sinners sitting down at the table to have a feast with the king. That future always lifts our present now. And this is a place of joy. So are you good to be around? Do you have a sense that you're carrying this secret of the kingdom of God and it's huge and people get around you and they just sense, you're sitting on something big, aren't you? I need to know a little bit more about that. I love the way that Thomas More, or Thomas Long described it. Thomas More, well, Thomas Long, he uh, went to a hotel On the elevator doors, you saw these posters, and it said, party tonight, room 211, 8 p.m., everyone invited. So you can imagine, bored, uh, vacationers, weary business people, you know, tired, just, oh, that sounds interesting. We should go check that out. They uh, do, they check it out, and it's a hoax. Nothing happening. Here's what Thomas Long writes for a brief moment. Those of us staying at the hotel were tantalized by the possibility that there just might be a party going on somewhere. To which we were all invited. A party where it didn't make much difference who we were when we walked in the door or what motivated us to come. A party we could come to out of boredom, loneliness, curiosity, responsibility, eagerness to be in fellowship. Or simply out of a desire to come and see what was happening. A party where it didn't matter nearly as much what got us in the door as what would happen to us after we arrived. When people are around you, do they sense that there's a party going on, and you're a part of it, and they want to know more. The kingdom of God is joy, and he is the Lord of the feast. Round four and five, ding, 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 we'll combine them together because they're about one thing and that's the Sabbath. The first story, Jesus' disciples walk along the fields, they pick heads of grain to eat, they're hungry. That wasn't wrong because the Jews were always commanded to share. What was wrong is they probably walked too far on the Sabbath. More on that in a minute. The second story is Jesus' home. Capernaum walks into the synagogue and he sees, he initiates this conflict, sees a man with a deformed hand He makes that man stand in front of everyone. And then he asks, specifically, his pastors, is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? (laughs) Hmm. The Sabbath. The Sabbath defined Judaism. Every faithful Jew obeyed the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath, given by God, was no work, rest, not even animals, no work. It would be similar to today, most people think a religious person goes to church. Same idea. But for the Pharisees, their way of approach to God was that you need to be a holy person, holy people know God. And so part of what we exist to do, the Pharisees were actually a lay movement, Uh, within synagogues to help people obey laws. You need to understand, these people were well regarded in their culture. Most of them had the Old Testament memorized. Just give that a thought. These were serious law keepers. God fearing people. And they wanted to help everyone become like them. So, when it would come to a question, and they were there to help people, what's it mean, the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath and keep us holy. Well, and keep it holy. Let us help you obey that. First of all, the Sabbath means no work. Okay, I get it, no work. But on the Sabbath day, how far can you walk and not break the Sabbath? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I got it. The Holy of Holies the main worship area, everyone needs to walk to that. And the Holy of Holies is 2,000 cubits from any other standing structure. So it seems to me that God would be okay if you walked 1,999 cubits. And then you would keep the law and not break the Sabbath. Sound good? And then they would measure each other just to make sure everyone's being holy. But What happens if on the Sabbath you really need to get down to Bethsaida? That's longer than 2,000 cubits. So, bylaw number 26 for the Sabbath. You can measure from the town gate. Waterstone, I'm not making this up. Okay. But I still need to get to Bethsaida. Okay. Uh, Bylaw number 27. Here's what you can do. You can leave your house on the day before the Sabbath walk near Bethsaida within 2,000 cubits, wrap a piece of bread in a blanket, stick it under a rock, and call that your domicile. And then on the Sabbath, you can walk from your home to your winter home, where you're still home, and then as long as you're 2,000 cubits from Bethsaida, you're good. You can keep the Sabbath. By law, 27. (coughs) (laughs) Woo! Can you imagine trying to get to God that way? In fact, the Pharisees developed 613 commandments to help you get to God. You see, here's how this works. There's really only two kinds of religion. There's Christianity and most other religion. Most other religions say, here, we'll give you advice. You follow this advice you be good, go to this, go to that, do this, do that, give this, give that, and you hopefully will be good enough. And then there's Christianity, which says, I don't have advice for you, what I have is news, news of someone who's lived the life you should have lived in perfect obedience and died the death you should have died to forgive all your sins. I've got news, it's Jesus. He's the Lord of the Sabbath and he can bring you rest, true, true rest to your heart. They were stunned when Jesus said this, when he said that The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He is essentially standing in the place of God, the Lord, Yahweh, the creator, who gave the Sabbath, and Jesus is reissuing the command. And that's why at the end of Mark 3, verse 6, they wanted to kill him a stunning claim again that he's the Sabbath giver. He's the one that knows what every human heart needs and it's rest. Not only rest from physical labor, but rest from trying to get to God on your way when he is providing his way, Jesus. We see a person's true heart through anger. And what do we see in Jesus' heart? We see him as the Lord of the heart who wants to bring forgiveness to every person. We see him as the Lord of the table, the one who in grace wants to reach every person, especially tax collectors and sinners. We see him as the Lord of the feast who wants his people spreading the joy of the party, and we see him as the Lord of the Sabbath who wants rest for every heart to know that the way to heaven doesn't depend on them, it depends on Jesus. Now, the Gospel of Mark was written to tell us who Jesus is. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about it, Christianity entails a decision. So you've got a decision to make again. Every week in Mark, you make the decision. Who is Jesus? In our text, there were three responses to him. There was the response of his pastors. It's interesting in Mark 3, 6 at the very end, it says that the Pharisees were conspiring with the Herodians to get rid of Jesus. Now, just briefly... Pharisees, traditionalists, had the Old Testament memorized, uh, original intent, conservative. Herodians, from their name, you see, they were Jews who agam- accommodated to Roman culture. They were following Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. They were adapting to their culture. They were progressives. Are you still with me? Conservatives and progressives Bipartisan in their belief that Jesus has to go. Why? Because Jesus is a threat to any human system that is not the kingdom of God. He's a threat. He is the new wine, and you can't put him in old wineskins. He's the new clothes. You can't sew him onto a patch of old clothes. He is huge and if you don't see him well he's got to go there's the crowds Secondly, the crowds. It's interesting, the word crowd is used 40 times in the first 10 chapters of Mark and almost always in a negative context. Like we saw today, it was the crowds that kept the paralyzed man from getting to Jesus. The crowds were fickle. The crowds were their paparazzi. They just wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus for entertainment or maybe they wanted to get healed. They wanted Jesus on their terms for what good he could bring to their lives. But when that happened or when they saw enough, they would walk away. Oh, oh, sorry, you gotta get the kids to soccer. Uh, uh, what, Jesus? You said what? Yeah, I like the love and grace part, but you actually want to get into my bedroom? You, you want to get into my wallet? What? Uh-uh. No. Don't need that. I'm good. They walked away. And then there's Matthew. That's Levi, right? Levi would be nicknamed Matthew by Jesus because Jesus was always giving people nicknames and renaming them like he's done you and I called Child of God. Matthew, the tax collector, gave everything to God. And he's the one who tells us what I believe were Matthew's favorite words of Jesus. The end of Matthew 11. Come unto me all of you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you because I am gentle and humble of heart my yoke is easy my burden light what do you want Who is Jesus? That's the question. I'm not asking you if you agree with everything he said. I'm not asking you you what you believe about who he was. The important question of life is you've got to answer the question, Who is Jesus? The text tried to show us today that from his heart, he is the one who wants to bring you and everyone you know forgiveness, grace, grace joy.